the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. Anarchist Subverting the System from Within by Dan McKee. The following is taken from my book, Anarchist, Atheist, Punk Rock Teacher, a memoir of struggle, grief, philosophy and hope, out now on Earth Island Books. And I guess the context is I have been a teacher for over a decade of uh, religious education and philosophy in English schools, um, despite being someone who doesn't like school when I was at school and is an anarchist who doesn't believe in authority and an atheist who doesn't believe in the God that I teach about. So it's kind of looking back at what led me to there and actually how I ended up quitting the profession last year and then what got me back into it. But this is the chapter about my sort of tackling the issue of discipline in the classroom. Being open and honest with my students means that even before I published my book, Authentic Democracy and Ethical Justification of Anarchism, it was no secret in my school that I was an anarchist although I'm not sure anyone but my most curious students knew exactly what anarchism entailed. The curious ones would ask big questions, go away and do lots of reading, and come back the next week with more questions to ask. Some even tracked down my PhD thesis online and would trawl through it for answers. Most, however, would simply treat the anarchism I sometimes talked about like a strange curiosity whenever it came up, or even as a joke. After all, how could I, one of the strictest teachers in the school, be someone who doesn't believe in rules and laws? Yeah, that's right, one of the strictest, but we need to back up a bit to get to that. I had asked myself the exact opposite question when I first decided to become a teacher. While I could square the circle politically with myself of why I wanted to get involved in education, even while maintaining multiple ideological objections to the specifics of contemporary schooling, I was intrigued to see how I would cope with the seemingly intrinsic need within such schools to be an authoritarian, when every instinct in my body went against the enforcement of ridiculous rules. As I watched teachers during my weeks of work experience obsess about whether someone had their tie on straight, the length of a student's skirt, the kind of earrings a child wore, the presence of trainers instead of school shoes, makeup and other jewellery, I seriously wondered how any human being could waste the energy to care about such things. In my own school days, I'd got into trouble all the time over these pointless uniform infractions. Growing up with an American mother and obsessed with American TV shows, I would see a whole country of students learning happily in their own clothes and wonder why such freedoms were not given to us here in the UK. Once, during my GCSEs, I got into trouble when I asked the latest teacher to nag me about tucking in my shirt what exactly the educational benefit of doing so was. Do you want to ask that of a senior member of staff, he'd asked, the subtext of threat that doing so would get me into further trouble. Yes, please, I replied eagerly, genuinely wanting to know. Swiftly, I was put into detention for my open curiosity. A few months later, still unsatisfied with the answers I'd been given, lofty but incoherent ideas about equality, belonging and better behaviour, and now doing pre-exams work experience at a local newspaper, I decided to write an article interviewing the local director of education and several local head teachers, including my own, about why they felt school uniform was so important. 
The answers they gave echoed those given to me the day I refused to tuck in my shirt, and were all easily countered by the fact that other countries educated their children just as well, if not better, without uniform, that belonging did not have to be dependent on clothing, and that many bullied or marginalised students at school still did not feel that sense of belonging despite wearing the same uniform as everybody else, and that equality over clothing wouldn't be an issue if it weren't that we were so messed up as a society about consumerism and social status in the first place when the underlying inequalities still remain and are talked about openly on the school playground, people all wearing the same school uniform as each other can and do continue to belittle each other over their appearance. Furthermore, in the places we were all told to aspire to want to learn at the highest level, universities, uniform wasn't worn. Why was a uniform an essential requirement to education in some settings, but not in other, even more academic ones? Writing the article didn't achieve anything, but I enjoyed giving the schools the opportunity to give school uniform its best defence and see them all coming up short. It had always seemed so obvious to me that despite the seemingly egalitarian rhetoric, uniforms are and always have been really about conformity and control, subsuming your individual identity to the collective and wearing what you're told to wear simply because you have been told to do so. If they were truly about equality alone, every child in the country would wear the same uniform and it would be provided for free. Never forget the poorer parents the argument suggests benefit from not having to have their child wear their own clothes to school each week, still have to clothe their child for all the other days they're not in school and buy an extra school uniform on top of that. Jeans and a comfortable top, if worn by all, could just as easily be a uniform as a suit and tie. But the formal business attire approach of our uniforms are all about learning from an early age that in the workplace you will be expected to bury any semblance of personality and wear whatever nonsense your bosses require you to wear. As soon as rules about uniform move from everyone wears X to and X must meet specific criteria A, B and C with sanctions doled out for not meeting that criteria, then unless there is a legitimate independent reason for that criteria, such as safety requirements or job necessity, it's merely about control. In some schools they even send students home for not wearing the right uniform, demonstrating that obeying these arbitrary rules about appearance is more important to the people running the school than any education ostensibly provided. As I thought about becoming a teacher, I hated the idea of becoming any part of that garbage, let alone having to be the enforcer of other bizarre policies of control, such as getting people to stand behind their chairs before the lesson began, rather than just sit down, or for them to sit silently as other students filed in for another tedious assembly. The shushing in assembly halls particularly bothered me, because it was so unlike the behaviour we would expect of any of these students, or ourselves, to display at any other public space before something begins. At the theatre, at the cinema, at a music venue, at a public lecture, for example, we chat happily amongst friends as we wait for the agreed signals to be silent. The dimming of the lights, the end of the trailers, the first note of music. A signal that only asks us to be silent when it is important that we be silent. We don't sit in eerie silence for five to ten minutes before the things get going which require our undivided attention. In fact, if any of the above signals happened and the action didn't begin fairly promptly, no one would be surprised at all by the audience getting restless and the chatter starting up again. So why do we expect young people to remain seen and not heard as they sit waiting on uncomfortable seats, or even on the floor, to hear or yawn through another list of administrative messages and moralistic missives they've got no personal interest in hearing in a school assembly? The answer again is obvious. It's not because the silence or the standing behind chairs is important in any objective way, As with wearing uniform, it's important because it is a rule laid out by an authority and the real lesson we are teaching, behind the overt academic curriculum, is the lesson that authority must always be obeyed. 
even if obeying that authority's rules makes little to no sense. It depressed me upon my return to the school environment as an adult that, despite the passage of time, no one seemed to be budging on their commitment to uncomfortable uniforms. That teachers so infrequently question the wisdom of doing these coercive things and blindly enforce clearly meaningless procedures, as if to break their edicts would be to commit some sort of criminal act, was something that had bothered me as a child and disturbed me even more as an adult intending to become one of these awful people myself. I really didn't know if I could do it. Tell a child off for doing something that harmed no one and merely broke a rule which made no sense to begin with. I remember one school assembly in my own childhood. The usual rigmarole, sitting in silence, and then, because it was what we did, standing in unison as the head teacher entered the room. Except this time, a group of my friends in the row ahead of me decided not to stand, just to see what would happen. The head marched down the aisle between our chairs, as he always did. The rest of us stood, as we always did. And these four or five brave social scientists embarked on their daring improvised fieldwork, staying calmly sitting as the short walking man glanced furiously in their direction, distracting his stroll to the stage. It is one of my life's biggest regrets that I did not join them. To me, they will always be heroes simply for reminding us that you can always say no. And the telling off they received afterwards only served to further expose how empty the silly rule was, as no better rationale for why they ought to have stood was offered than because it's what we do here. As an adult who still admires the intellect of such mutiny, how would I be able to tell similar students off with a straight face if something like that happened in a school where I was the teacher now? This is not to say the anarchist classroom is a lawless one. Those who understand the theoretical underpinnings of anarchism and don't just know the word from its common, incorrect conflation with chaos and leering images of snarling punks yelling destroy know that anarchists are quite comfortable with following rules they agree are necessary. The difference between an anarchist rule and a non-anarchist one, however, is that the anarchist rules are agreed to by all who choose to follow them, not merely imposed on them from above, and they are temporary and contingent. The rule is followed because we want to achieve something, and doing so allows us to achieve it. If the thing we want to achieve can be achieved without the rule, or the thing we want to achieve is already achieved, we no longer need the rule. So, for example, as an anarchist teacher, I would have no problem with enforcing a rule that we be quiet when people are speaking so we can hear what they have to say. Such a rule makes sense and ensures everyone can learn together without impediment. Note also that the rule doesn't simply say we're quiet when the teacher is talking, because I don't think such a rule can be justified. If the students need to be quiet when I speak so they can hear what I have to say, we all, including me, ought to be quiet when they speak, so we can hear them too. This is especially true when a lesson is discursive, and everyone's contribution is equally valuable to the overall learning. However, at the same time, we might also agree in the anarchist classroom to give a teacher some more authority than their students, strictly limited to their role in facilitating learning and the specialist knowledge they may have on both the subject being studied and on pedagogical strategies, which might make them better placed to make such judgments about how best to achieve the learning goals being sought. So, while we might justify the rule of being quiet when people are speaking, we might also allow that the teacher can have the special privilege of calling time on a group discussion, or noting or even silencing contributions which are off-topic or inaccurate. All of this can be consistent with anarchism, so long as the authorities and privileges agreed to don't step outside the bounds of relevance on which consent to them was justified. In other words, in my classroom, to help you learn a certain topic, we might agree to grant me the temporary and purposeful authority to ask for quiet at times and direct what activities we do. But once the lesson is over, that authority is over too. And even then, if the same agreed ends can be achieved without that, 
say for example by the students themselves taking control over what activities we do and telling me how they would like a lesson to be taught rather than me telling them, then such authority is no longer justified. Remember, the rules have to be agreed to, not simply imposed. And if I ask you to do something which doesn't lead to the agreed end of our educational goal, then you would be free to refuse to comply. So while the anarchist teacher's classroom may have a range of rules and procedures to be followed without contradiction, if they aid the learning, and I felt no personal tension at the idea of ensuring my classroom was a productive and purposeful one, the idea of discipline was something else entirely. After all, my asking you to read a handout or be quiet so we can hear someone speak theoretically serves a legitimate educational purpose. My giving you a detention and asking you to give up your free time serves only a punitive one. The argument is that the punitive consequences of consistent sanctions ultimately mean students learn the need to follow the teacher's instructions, and this will help with their education. But this is where my anarchism and traditional UK schooling come to odds. The use of punitive sanctions to encourage compliance is not based in student learning, or at least not their academic learning. It is teaching students only that if they do not do as their teacher tells them, even if they have good reasons for not doing so, they will be punished. My desire, therefore, was to enforce the rules anarchically, not by threat of punitive sanction, but by rational explanation of the negative consequences of not doing what was asked, i.e. you might fail the course or not learn about the topic at hand. Of course, there's a problem with the idea of rational discourse in the classroom instead of punitive sanctions. Sometimes the student is right, the rule is stupid, or the lesson is not worth doing. In a world where curricula are imposed by exam boards or school strategies aim at ends divorce from education, all too often the only answer we have as to why we have asked our students to do something is because you have to. Why? Because we have to. And then there's the issue of numbers. Can teachers overseeing classes of 30 or more students answer each individual rebellion with thoughtful discourse and discussion without impeding their ability to teach the rest of the class? The punitive sanctions are there to be a quick solution in time-sensitive circumstances within a problematic education system juggling the simultaneous needs of multiple students we simply do not have the time to engage with as humans. Comply or else. So, recognising the structural impediments to bringing a purely rational approach to discipline into my classroom, I went the opposite direction to subvert from within. I decided to, in wrestling parlance, turn heel, become the bad guy, the one who does everything in their power to get you to hate them and everything they stand for. Instead of letting freedom reign in my classroom, I would enforce all the school's stupid rules, precisely and to the letter. I would intentionally become one of the strictest street teachers in the school in order to highlight how preposterous, unfair and open to corruption the rules were, and hopefully foster a more deep-seated revolt against all such ridiculous rules in the minds of my furious students. I would do this explicitly, enforcing the rules and playing my heel character while simultaneously calling out how dumb they are as I did it. I would be a heel who knows they are playing the heel. Soon I became one of the only teachers in the school making students stand in silence behind their desks before the lesson would begin. But why, sir, students would ask. No one else cares. I know, I'd tell them. But apparently the school thinks it's important enough that it's still written down as one of their rules. They put it in the staff handbook that we all have to do this and they induct new teachers to the school like me by telling us this is what we do here, even though it isn't. Weird, huh? But why do it if no one else does? Because the strange thing is that this total waste of time at the start of the lesson, which you should all complain about, look, it's taken at least two minutes of potential learning time to get you all to do it, is something I can't actually be told off for doing with you, as the school has explicitly stated that this is how all lessons should start at this school. But why though? 
I pointed out that every new question meant a longer delay on starting the lesson. Then also pointed out that if they did that intentionally to delay the start of the lesson in the hope of shortening the lesson, I also quite unreasonably had the power to take away their break time or their lunch time at the end of the lesson and make up the lost time then, even though there wouldn't have been any lost time if I hadn't have decided to enforce the stupid rule in the first place. And then I answered the question anyway. Because the idea is that by getting you all to stand silently at the start of the lesson, it resets you like machines, so that any energy or potential for misbehaviour that you enter the classroom with is diffused. It's meant to be calming and remind you that this is a brand new lesson, so you leave behind any baggage that may be lingering from last lesson or from the corridors. Genuinely interested, the class is silent now as they listen to my response, so I allow them to sit down and begin the lesson. At any point in the next 45 minutes where someone misbehaves, I don't have to point out to the student that the magical reset idea clearly doesn't work. They point it out for me. The demonstrable failing of standing silently at the start of the lesson is self-evident to them. Nevertheless, next lesson we do it again. Why this again, sir? I know, awful, isn't it? But it's the school's rules and we're meant to follow them, even if they make no sense. But that doesn't make any sense, sir. Exactly. By flagging up the stupidities, my hope was to raise a nagging voice inside my students' heads about rules in general. At some point, my school brought in an utterly awful system of behaviour points and achievement points, which allowed us to log onto the computer system every instance of good or bad behaviour our students displayed. Staff were told it was merely for information purposes at first, recording incidents across the day so that we could all be aware if any of our students were having issues and praise those who were doing well. But soon and inevitably, it became punitive instead of informational. Three behaviour points a day, you get a lunchtime detention. Too many across a week, you get an after-school detention and get put on report. And while the list of categories for bad behaviour were endless, there were only ever a handful of positive behaviours which would warrant an achievement point, stacking the deck purposefully towards sanction rather than praise. One particularly ambiguous behaviour category was refusal to comply. A behaviour point which, for some reason, meant an immediate after-school detention. The reason being, I guess, that the biggest crime of all was not doing what a teacher tells you to do, saying no to a teacher. I gave out that particular behaviour point frequently in order to show how ill-defined it was. If I asked a student to do some work and they didn't, was that refusal to comply? If I asked them to stop talking and they continued, was that? If they hadn't done the homework I'd set, were they refusing to comply? The reason I asked and discussed the ambiguity openly with my students was because there were other distinct behaviour points for all those other things insufficient work, disruptive behaviour, homework not done behaviour points, but all of these behaviours which might actually be considered legitimate concerns because they suggested the student was not properly accessing the education they're ostensibly there to get, through refusing to comply with our instructions, did not apparently merit the immediate sanction of a detention in the way that the distinct refusal to comply behaviour point did because that offence, saying no to a teacher explicitly, was disrespectful to the teacher and not merely an impediment on a student's learning, because we teachers need to be respected, or else. When my school made a mistake with this policy and enabled me to abuse it and make it teachable to my students, was that it wasn't the class teacher who handed out the after-school detention for the refusal to comply behaviour point. It was the head of year, such was the supposed severity of the crime. I would therefore clearly explain to my students how they had refused to comply when they did something very minor I had asked them to do, sorry, didn't do something very minor I'd asked them to do, and then leave it to the head of year to explain to the student why they needed to have an after-school detention for such a tiny infraction. The eventual realisation would dawn that this wasn't actual refusal to comply, but merely insufficient work or homework not done or low-level disruption or some other low-level crime, 
and the head of year would then have to somehow explain why one form of refusal to comply in the school was apparently much worse than all the others. The student would avoid the detention, but also recognise that as a school, we seem to be far more concerned with enforcing respect for our teachers than we were with the quality of education the students were getting. After all, if a student hadn't engaged with the work, bothered with their homework, or decided to chat with a friend instead of do what the teacher asked of them, one way of reading that behaviour was that maybe the teacher wasn't properly challenging or engaging them with their lessons. Maybe it was our fault, not theirs. All of this would be discussed openly with my students. I would explain that I was showing them the faults with the behaviour system and using them to make a point. I would explain that even my doing so demonstrated the unjustifiable power disparities between students and their teachers, because I was basically playing with their free time and causing them stress to show them how bad the system of rules and sanctions were simply because I could. But as well as doing my best to simultaneously try to show them that a note on a computer or a lost recess or lunchtime wasn't exactly the end of the world... I would also treat very differently those actual moments where real responses were needed to address behavioural issues. Actually talking to the students who disrupted lessons about why they were doing it. Discussing my own lesson planning with students to give them a proper say in what we were doing and make lessons more enjoyable if they found they were switching off. Even setting fun or educational tasks when I was forced to give detentions, such as poetry writing, short stories or art projects, rather than the expected punitive sanctions they were used to if I was forced by the school's behaviour policy to run one. Every good wrestling heel also knows when it's time to turn babyface and finally be the good guy. The problem with my performance art approach to teaching students about the stupidity of school discipline, however, is that the reality of the power imbalance I was trying to make a mockery of meant that whatever my intended subversion most students missed the subtext, experienced real sanctions, and just thought I was a prick. While I might have harboured grand ideas about my detentions inspiring future revolution and rebellion, for the students detained it was just an irritating and unjust denial of their freedoms. And many of the sanctions they received happened beyond my classroom and were not part of my intended parody. Stern words and telling off from form tutors and heads of year as those silly marks against their names on a computer were read by others in higher positions of authority than me who still bought into the system and interpreted the data as an objective affront. Who knows how many groundings and locked away games consoles at home were caused because of my stupid attempts at making a point, let alone the possible beatings from parents who still, behind closed doors, acted as if it were another error. For all my philosophising about behaviour points simply being notes on a computer, most adults had long trained to interpret those invented marks as something real, and unsurprisingly, they therefore did so. My personal mission to lampoon the wider system might, one far away day in the future, cause the victims of my pantomime to rethink their relationships with authority, but it didn't stop it a jot in the here and now. And in the here and now, I was causing nothing but harm. It also at some point became hard to separate the performance from the reality. We were told from day one in teacher training about the need for consistency in behaviour management, as well as the importance of following through on any threats we might make. Once a teacher tells a class that if they don't do what's been asked of them, there will be consequences, and then there are no consequences, a class learns very quickly they can get away with anything. So, committed to my character, I would lay out my expectations to the class, be clear I would be following the school policy to the letter, and in doing so, I would end up having to dole out far too many actual punishments to students who had only committed the most minor of infractions. This often escalated their misbehaviour and occasionally led to some genuine hostility and bad feeling. I wanted to show how inhumane the behaviour system was by demonstrating that if actually followed in the way it was written, but which, interestingly, no one actually followed in practice, 
it descended into absurdity. Instead, though, I find myself unable to be humane myself. I became the personification of the inflexibility of the system. I became an actual prick. Lost in the role I was playing, I realised there was no meaningful distinction between pretending to be a strict disciplinarian to make a point and actually being a strict disciplinarian. Some students were genuinely frightened of me and my erratic and unpredictable behaviour. Would I be the joke-slinging, wacky voices, take-nothing-too-seriously version of me I sometimes was if they asked me questions? Or would I be the asshole? In the name of consistency, I was getting trapped inside the role. This conflict between having to enforce problematic school behaviour policies and stay true to both who I was and what I believed was the toughest element of becoming a teacher. Although I was often a go-to colleague for people to come and observe for my so-called excellent classroom management skills, I don't believe I ever got it right unless it was the times I was actively ignoring the policy or any misguided aspiration I had to lampoon it through strict adherence. And I was just working horizontally with my students instead of hierarchically against them relationships not rules are key and rigidly enforcing stupid rules only ever acted as a barrier to having successful relationships when i drop the act and open up a dialogue with my classes as equal partners in their own education even the students who thought i was an asshole happily opened up too they worked better than they ever had before when given the freedom to set their own parameters in the classroom either on the topics they were studying or the approach they were going to take to their learning time and time again students thrived Anarchism in action, informal, non-hierarchical, student-led and self-directed teaching smuggled into the margins of an otherwise hierarchical, exam-obsessed and rigidly formal school timetable. Whether we educate people in schools or outside of them, the students, those we intend to do the learning, are always the key, key people we need to be talking with, working with and working in collaboration with to determine what ought to go on in any learning environment that truly cares about educating them and not simply coercing them into forced compliance. Education need not always be hierarchical and imposed, but can be, as many homeschoolers and unschoolers know, horizontal and self-directed. Schools have no special privilege as the best places in which education can happen, and in fact many of the norms of the school and of the teacher actively get in the way of anything meaningful happening educationally in the classroom beyond rote memorization and regurgitation of arbitrary information. It is a choice for schools to enforce strict systems of behavior, and it's a choice that has little to do with education. By breaking free of that, and by breaking free of my own experiments with parody of behavior systems, and experimenting instead with anarchist pedagogy, my students taught me as much as I would teach them. They now benefited from my specialist knowledge of philosophy and religion, but I benefited from their honest feedback and their own insights about the world. Their personal philosophies and religious beliefs, yes, but also I learnt the importance of being kinder and more humane than my authoritarian caricature of a teacher was allowing me to be. And when I saw how stuck I was becoming inside the caricature and how such kindness and humanity was becoming harder to access the more years that went by playing that pantomime role, my students were the ones that taught me it was time to take a long, hard look at myself. However, I was all too aware that there were many students who found these sessions when I would do anarchist experiments in pedagogy a waste of time, precisely because they weren't covering standard exam or classroom material. The problem with being critical of the dominant system and trying to offer alternatives from within it is that, well, the system is still dominant, which means most people either buy into it or have never really questioned it before. It is the perceived normal and natural, the correct way of doing things. 
If school is about carefully structured learning experiences aimed at getting you top marks in a terminal examination, then wild moments of improvised, unstructured and explicitly non-exam-focused free-form education could be deeply troubling. They flew in the face of the ever-present narrative that every lesson counted and there was barely enough time in the school year to cover all the content, as well as the increasing standardisation of what a lesson was supposed to be growing in the wake of a supposedly research-informed turn in education policy. As the DfE, Ofsted and various organisations began to hold up the latest developments in cognitive science on memory and making information stick as the guiding principle of what education ought to be, students were increasingly facing a homogenised classroom experience across the curriculum and found approaches to teaching them in more maverick styles uncommon and strange. Those who got it, got it. But more and more students seemed only interested in covering exam material and less concerned with exploring their own ideas. Truly listening to students and letting them take the reins of their own learning has to mean letting them lead, even if sometimes it leads in directions you personally wish it wouldn't. Good education should be a conversation rather than a monologue, and certainly not a shouted monologue. And in good conversation we are directed by what others say as much as by what we plan on saying ourselves. You can't coerce people into non-coercive education, And if you ask students to take the reins and they use them to return themselves right back to the sort of education they're most familiar with, rather than the more radical alternatives you offer, it's a reminder that real change takes time and can't be done alone. If we want schools to be sites of authentic education, therefore, much more work needs to be done, even for those of us like me, an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher already attempting to subvert them, sometimes successfully, and more often than not unsuccessfully, from within. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, middle fingers in the air. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, no exam is ever fair. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, I want the system smashed. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, but I can't be late for class. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, no masters and no gods. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, surviving against the odds. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, I hate school uniform. I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher, don't ask me to conform. I always hated my school when I was younger, yet back I go each day. I don't advocate hierarchy, power, or authority, but kids do what I say. I teach them religions I don't believe in, ideas I think do harm. And they look at me strangely when they see all the tattoos on my arm Ooh, I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher Anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher Anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher How did I end up here? I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock there must be some mistake I'm an anarchist, idiot, punk rock teacher I feel like I'm a fake I'm an anarchist, idiot, punk rock teacher I help you to go far 
I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher But I'd rather play my guitar I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher I'm teaching the lyrics to crass I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher How long do you think I will last? I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher This system must be stopped I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher I'm in charge, but I'm not Those who can do something useful The rest of us we teach I'm corrupting the youth like Socrates But your hemlock's out of reach I'm subverting the system from the inside At least I try my best Let my students learn to be their own true selves Is their only worthwhile test Ooh, I'm an anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher Anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher Anarchist, atheist, punk rock teacher How did I end up here? Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.